So, hi guys, Matt here. Um, this week we are extremely lucky to be speaking with author Kirsten Innes. Um, you may know Kirsten for her first novel, um, Fishnet, um, talking about people's experiences and attitudes towards sex work. Um, this time we're predominantly talking about her second novel, Scabby Queen. Um, Scabby Queen's a really like, complex and nuanced look at a person through the eyes of everybody else in their life. Immediately after this, main character Cleo commits suicide. Um, it's about as interesting a book as I've read in a long, long time. Um, Kirsten talks us through, you know, obviously the plot, the structure, the characters, and all sorts. Um, and the conversation as a former literature student was just pretty much the reason why I got into this. Um, so we really hope you enjoy this and we highly, highly recommend that you go and buy the book as quickly as you can because it's dynamite. Enjoy. Um, so hello and welcome to what will be, I think, episode 90, as we discussed, of the Rebel City podcast. Um, this week... We are delighted to have author Kirsten Innes, um, who's going to be talking to us um, about our latest novel, Scabby Queen. Um, hi, Kirsten, how are you doing? Yeah, that is indeed Scabby Queen. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have you on. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Um, usually we kind of just throw open the first couple of minutes in the off chance that our audience don't know who the guest is um, and just let the people introduce themselves in their, own t- in their own terms, really. I mean, do you just mind letting folk know who you are? Sure. I, I um, yeah, <laughs> I write books. <laughs> um, I've written two books. My first book, Fishnet, came out in 2015 um, and this one has just come out in July this year, Scabby Queen, is book number two. Um, I live in Loch Winnick, uh, in Renfrewshire. Um, I lived in Glasgow for 15 years, maybe not quite that um, before that. And um, yeah, um, background in journalism and arts and um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think no, we should have like a, a proper finished introduction for myself. Right? <laughs> I, I, I used to play in bands for years and one of the worst my, my nightmare, I'd wake up in cold sweats when people would be like, just describe your music to us. And you're like, no, oh, I can't. <laughs> I can't do that. You can do that for me. But um, I, it, it's just really just to give people an idea off the bat, like what we're going to be talking about. I think podcasting is one of the things that some people will listen and really enjoy the guest and some people will listen and be like, no, I'm not really that interested. So we just like to give people the opportunity up front to know what we're talking about. But like Matt was saying, we're going to talk about Scabby Queen and we were talking off mic about my inability to read fast, but I get through the first hundred pages and... Um, and it's a really interesting take on, like, I think the 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 way that the story's told about the death of somebody through other people is really interesting. Um, I think that one of the things that really jumped out at me was the difference in how, and this is, I suppose, something that I've been thinking about since reading, the difference in how other people in your life see you as an individual so you've, you've, you've got an idea of yourself in your mind and you think about yourself in certain ways, but everybody will think about you differently. And I thought that was really interesting. Was that one of the sort of aims of writing it from other people's perspectives? Yeah, yeah. So Scabby Queen, um, it's, a, it's, it's the story of one woman's life told after her death. It starts off with her, with her death. And um, yeah, I really wanted to... Um, it was a deliberate choice. You never hear from my, my main character, Cleo um, herself. I wanted to see um, how much of a picture you can build up of somebody just by taking into account all the people who, well, not all the people, that would be a really long book. It's already pretty bad. Um, but taking into account sort of um, what other people thought of them around the way and how these, I, I find it really interesting actually, how these accounts can kind of, how two people can have completely different idea of the same person depending on circumstance depending on any number of tiny little things in an interaction um so that's something that's always fascinated me so I thought it would be a really interesting thing to do to tell a story of a person see how much how much of an idea of a person you can get across without ever being inside their own heads 
um, directly. So yeah, that that was that was quite deliberate. It was always kind of conceived like that. It's a, it's a, a technique that I really enjoyed. I mean, you know, and and the build up to this, I'd kind of flagged up that I did do a, you know, a bit of study in literature over the years, um, and I, I, I struggle to think of a time I've seen or I read anything personally that had this kind of like fragmented kind of storytelling and I kind of took almost kind of like the opposite where you're saying that these different accounts gear a really nuanced and sort of broad idea of Cleo as a person but like we talk about mental health and suicide and suicide prevention quite regularly and one of the things that we hear from people is that when somebody takes their own life it leaves a hole and when I seen the various perspectives of Cleo's life and death I was drawn to the absence that it left that, you know, it felt like you were maybe trying to illustrate that impact on the life of people when somebody's removed in that manner. Is that something that would be? Yeah, no, that, that as well to a certain extent. And yeah, um, it's, it's just both, both of those things kind of working together um, is how I sort of structured the book. I just thought it was really interesting to see. Um, sorry, I'm a, big, I'm a big hand talker. I don't know. <laughs> it's all right. Um, it's something I've become aware of since doing all these Zoom things. You can suddenly <laughs> see your hand, put your hands down. And, um, yeah, it's, it's it's just that idea of um, trying to, yeah, the, the whole is, is definitely something that was there as well. So there's there's the absence of that person directly and all you're left with is memories. And, you know, I, 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 again, I'm interested in the memories that we kind of, the way that we sort of... Um, change memories around you know people's memories can kind of shift to fit um the story that they want to tell themselves at the time yeah yeah i wanted to show that as well i just it's kind of like just the idea of um all these things that make up a person or don't i mean cleo all the way through the book you can tell it's cleo even if you're hearing from a character who doesn't know her name yeah but she's got the red hair and she's got the lipstick. And I thought those are kind of two signifiers that can carry her throughout her life because it does mm. the book does jump about over 50 years of her life. Um, but at the same time, you know, those are just two sort of external things that she becomes kind of, she's, she's, she's sort of minorly famous. Um, and then after her death, there's a sort of a great outpouring of grief on social media. And um, I'm just interested in these kind of ideas of how something as tiny as like some red lipstick that can suddenly mean something, but it's not it's not anywhere near the you know it's it's an external signifier sure, but it's not anywhere near the complexity of the inner person. So mm-hmm. yeah, there were all these there were all these ideas. I just I thought it'd be an interesting thing to see how you can how you can do that approach it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think like even just outside of the book it felt really real it felt like a real story I mean I think when I first started reading it I was thinking I'm going to google who this person is because I've never heard her before thinking that this is feels like a real story um, really indicative to like how well the story's been told um, but what one of the things that really screamed out at me is, and I think this is something that is really prevalent is like why do we why do we feel such like a, a draw towards people that have died? Like, why do people's art become more relevant once they're gone? I mean, we've, there's 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 famous examples of it throughout the years, but in recent times, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, uh, Michael Hutchins, who had almost until had it last week with Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, mm-hmm. but people like Michael, the one with Michael Hutchins was it felt quite closely a, a the Chloe story because he had almost became irrelevant. As, as, as an artist but then once he died he became relevant again but yeah. why do you think that we do sort of like glamorize this we almost feel drawn to this sort of like immortalizing people that have either committed suicide or died young it is it's this immortalizing isn't it so I, um the, the the thing that kind of motivated me to to make her a bit famous and to see that sort of um that kind of uh, reaction from people outside of people who had just known her um, so that was um, was Carrie Fisher, um, who was the last of 2016. There were so many celebrity deaths, so many mm, yeah. people dying. David Bowie, Prince, Alan Rickman, Carolina Hearn. The more you think about it, that was that was a a lot of people. And then Carrie Fisher right at the end there, and Carrie Fisher had had this really really big year, where um, the new Star Wars film had come out, and she was getting a lot of criticism for being. A woman in her sixties, not 
you know, mm-hmm. his teenage obsession in a metal bikini anymore. And yeah. um, she was also, she was on Twitter, she was arguing with Trump, she was angry, she was not, she was messy. She wasn't, you know, your beautiful Princess Leia. Um, and people were slamming her on social media. They were laughing at her. It was it was really a nasty, vicious kind of atmosphere yeah. around her that year. And mm-hmm. then she died right at the end of that year. And immediately it was like, whew, she'd been sainted, she'd been immortalized, she'd been, you know, like you're finally allowed to take ownership of the person when they stop their own thoughts. And yeah. it was, I really wanted to, that, that was really what motivated me to kind of start asking these questions and make Cleo a sort of a semi-famous person to see just kind of I'm interested in that I'm interested in when somebody's in the public eye everybody sort of assumes that they know them a little bit particularly actors and singers where you're kind of um you know they're they're putting emotion out there and people are sort of identifying with them Mm. Um, and of course nobody knows anybody like that we're just projecting ideas of our own onto To these 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 things, so that's that was all kind of feeding into into Cleo. So I think you're really right. It's it's strange this, you know, when somebody's story stops, are you like to people feel like they're allowed to take ownership of them? So yeah. Really do you think it's got something to do with the fact that then the media can control the, mm-hmm. the sort of narrative of the person yeah. so then they can use this now it's like oh now we can now the person's gone their opinions are gone and maybe like Amy Winehouse for example now she's not going to be seen with needle marks and her, her feet her and her boyfriend coming out of a limousine covered in blood. Now that we don't have that, we can now take this. And then there's the whole people are worth more dead than alive, especially if they're an artist. They can then start to milk their estate for all it's worth rather than having control. I don't know if that's got a lot to do with the fact that we love this. It's the media love it, so they can just grab it and run with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. All of that was kind of feeding into... Um, that's why I thought... I'd started off with this idea of the missing person, told the story told by everybody else around. But then after the Carrie Fisher thing, it just kind of crystallised for me that, of course, she was going to be slightly famous. I wasn't interested in writing a big A-list celebrity. She's yeah. at the most. But um, yeah, and, and again, just that way that you, oh, you see it all the time at the moment. And the thing is that, yeah, she, she, she's a musician, Cleo. She's, she's had this one-hit wonder that's meant a lot to a lot of people at various points. And I wanted to try and try and show that I guess as well but yeah just the way there's a whole bit afterwards um where you go on Instagram <laughs> and um you know it's one of the characters searches for her on Instagram and there's just like all these filtered pictures of her and her lipstick and kind of R.I.P. rest in power sort of sort of idea. yeah I don't know. but maybe it's it's as well um maybe it's it's sort of fulfilling some sort of need for public grieving or coming together that we we've lost along the way I don't know because people seem to be kind of magnetised to a celebrity death don't they yeah definitely um, one of the things I kind of wanted to touch on and, and, and Paul kind of like sort of glanced over it was the level of realism in this and like for me what really felt real was the the actual characterization of the people who were observing Cleo's passing like so it felt to me like I was actually feeling or reading somebody's genuine account of them losing their mate, them losing their ex-lover, them losing, you know, a a work colleague or whatever it is. Like, now, the vast majority of people probably struggle to get through the characterisation of one sort of main character when they write a book. Like, where do you even start the process here of writing 10 people who actually feel like actualised individuals? Like, that must be pretty daunting. (laughs) <laughs> it, honestly it, it wasn't um the the way this book came about it's um I'm kind of shocked that it all hangs together to be honest um I wrote it around um just I only had tiny wee snatches of time to write it I wrote it around um a whole drawn out IVF process finally getting pregnant having a baby raising the baby and a toddler getting pregnant the second time um and, and also working. I had these tiny snatches of time where I could write. And so it started out like any little idea I would get for a person or a character. Um, I would just kind of, they had to fit into Cleo's world somehow. And you yeah. know, I had no time to lose. Any writing time had to be working on this book. Um, and um, I, I don't know, in terms of, it's really important to me that my, my characters feel like real people. So that means a lot that you said that. Like, um, 
something that always turns me off when I'm reading is if the characters feel a bit stagey or if they've been kind of conceived as like ciphers or puppets or symbols of something. Um, mm -hmm. Particularly the unlikable ones. I, I don't know, I, I, that's what I'm interested in. That's what I'm interested in reading about is real people's experiences. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it, it's, it's really nice to hear that they all feel like real people because I, I was quite emotionally in, involved in, in a lot of them, actually. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a couple of them particularly that really do have my heart and feel I feel a lot closer to them than mm -hmm. necessarily, even though she's the kind of the linchpin around which the book. I get what you're saying. I think when I was reading through, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I've been pronouncing it in my head as Xanthi. Mm. Um, well, she talks about having went to Greece and found a sort of new life, and then Cleo comes to visit her, and it almost she almost brings a sort of dark cloud where I I've got to say I like I felt a real like oh you know a real connection to like Xanthi there because I was almost like disappointed for her that this had come back into her life at a time when she was actually sort of moving forward. You know what I mean? So I get what you're saying in terms of there's an instance there straight away where I've sided over the, the character who's narrating rather than, you know, the the object of the entire affair. Yeah, yeah, but that was, yeah, that was really important. Just, that, that's how I wanted to approach it. My, my original idea was um, to write a book about a person who has extreme kind of short-term relationships, friendships or or romantic relationships um, and they're very intense but they're very short term and they're blown up and she moves on to the next person but what I was interested in there were the people left in the wake afterwards the kind of the ripple effects because um, I mean even though I have <laughs> officially written a book about this big charismatic destructive semi-celebrity type what's interesting to me is the the quieter people who are magnetized towards that who sometimes get picked up and spat out the collateral who are used as collateral essentially um because it's the, the big showy people's stories that we always tell and hear because they're the ones that kind of like one yeah. of the characters says in the book suck all the air towards them um about Cleo so yeah that's that's what I wanted and and it, it feels really nice that you felt it was real as well my mum went on um I think you've not finished it Paul have you so I'm not I don't want to no. Well, it's all right, you won't. I'm no, I'm no precious about it. The word <laughs> One of the characters writes um, a biography of Cleo towards the end, and uh, my mum found herself on, on like she was looking online afterwards trying to buy that, that biography so she could find it. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh yeah, I've done something quite good there. If it feels that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think see, from my perspective, I'm not a big fan of fiction. Mm. I've never been able. I don't know if it's something to do with the imagination. Or I genuinely don't know, but when people have handed me, so one of my, my mates handed me like a, a fictional book about like the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. and it's, it's something that you had said that when you don't, the characters you don't like are the ones that you don't feel are real. When I was reading that, I was like, this doesn't feel realistic to me. It feels like sort of almost sci-fi, even though it's going back the way. But when I read books like, when I started reading Scabby Queen, but I've also read Young Team mm -hmm. um, by... Uh, Graham Armstrong, yeah. Is that Graham Armstrong? Yeah. Aye. I edit this anyway, don't worry, I'll take it that way. By Graham Armstrong. That I think that I've started to realise it's no fiction and non-fiction, it's the fact that I'm, I'm able to relate or even just feel that these characters are really real so it draws me in and it keeps me hooked whereas I find myself in the sort of where you need to fan use the sort of fantasy element of reading I don't really get into that so I think that's testament because I, like I said I read 100 pages yesterday and I'm loving like I, I can't wait to just keep going to get it like, I'm no sometimes with books I get a bit like all right now I want to just get through this just to just so that I can read it mm -hmm. and but with this book I feel really engaged so that's testament to what you're saying like I think you've achieved the goal of creating, like I said, I mean, I googled the person to find out who they were. So, <laughs> and you weren't uh, on there either? No, definitely not. Um, see, just before we, we like move into another subject, like you were talking there about like the creative process, having kids going through a pregnancy, um, you, you were obviously like very, very busy and had a very busy life at the time. How did you, me and Matt talk a lot about 
with a lot of the guests about flow state. We were talking to uh, James Allen for Las Vegas about mm-hmm. he sometimes feels like he reads his lyrics back and he's like, I don't remember writing these lyrics. It, it just <laughs> sort of like flows out. But for me personally, to get into that creative space of like no mind, it takes me a while to get there. So I need to just sort of plug away for an hour and then eventually I get to that place. See, when you've got like sort of small amounts of time, do you have a technique to get yourself into that state of creativity or is it just something that you've been able to just tap into easily? It comes and goes. Um, I find it quite important for me. I need to block the internet, um, completely block it. Like I've got various blocking systems in place that come in and they're scheduled in advance because I need to, I need the space, of, I need brain space. Like I, I, I describe it as like the opposite of Twitter. Twitter's like tiny wee bits nipping away at you all the time. Lots of little ideas and words, hundreds of different ones. And I need a big space. Before I had kids, I used to go away to Akhiltabui, um and rent a wee bothy there on the beach and, and write. For a week at a time, um, I really miss that, but that's not possible now. But I live in um, I live in Loch Winnick. I live in a, a place where I can get out to big sky and big space. It was kind of one of the reasons I left Glasgow. Actually, my partner's a writer as well, and we both found that, especially with social media coming, mm. we just needed to be able to see a big expanse of sky or a big expanse of water, and just kind of for some reason that helps my brain be able to kind of think it through does this make sense yeah yeah absolutely yeah you're almost like grounding yourself to get moving yeah but also opening it up a bit open my mind up a bit i'm always um i do a lot of uh, coaching with um emerging writers and the one thing i always say is find some way of getting away from your computer screen Mm -hmm. Um, to feel your book kind of outside of a square in some way in order to make it feel feel real so yeah I get like sometimes I get great big A2 sheets of paper for me it's it's all about like getting space and that way you can kind of build it together um Mm. but yeah when when I was so busy it was just I'm kind of amazed still how it all came together because I just felt like writer's block was a luxury I could not afford to have with this book (laughs) I mean I finished it two weeks before my second baby was born wow Um, so the last I wrote like 50,000 words of it in three months towards the end my partner said look I'm going to take on some extra work so you can give up work because you need to get this book finished yeah um, I haven't written a word in two years now so um, fair <laughs> enough I was right to, to get it done and get it in there but yeah it's just uh, about um but this one it all just came out of me the, the other book the first book was much harder this one I'm I kind of don't really want to take that much credit for it. There just seems to be something that came. And I'm a bit worried I'm not able to create that circumstance again, actually. But yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask, because especially like the, the character Cleo, like, even though, as you say, she's not, you, we don't actually hear her directly throughout the course of the book. Like, she's somebody who, like, grabbed me. Like, I, I was really drawn to the character. And, like, I wonder if, like, the, the conscious choice to kind of leave her out was that difficult like was it you know I mean you've painted a really nuanced and like detailed picture through the eyes of other people like Mm -hmm. I I feel as though there is a really complete picture of Cleo in the book but like other Cleo chapters sitting about in a drawer somewhere that we can get a look at (laughs) not not Cleo there are are a few missing narrators um that I uh that I'm gonna I don't know, there, there were two that didn't make it into my final cut of the book before I submitted it to my agent. And then there were another two that my editor said, I think they're maybe just doing double duty. We can maybe get them out. So yeah, there were even more other voices. There are, there are I think, three bits in the book um, where, uh, and there's two missing chapters from the hardback as well. I don't know if you read, did you read it in hardback, Matt? I've got yeah. the hardback, yeah. Yeah, I'll send you an email. There's... Um, it was a massive, it was because of COVID, there was just a massive... Oh, I remember seeing this, actually. You were talking about how there were no collector's items making the joke about it. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's two missing chapters in there, but there's there's three bits in total, including one of the missing chapters, where you hear a big kind of rant from Cleo's point of view. Right. So that felt like about as much as I wanted her to kind of... Same. Yeah, um, and I, I'm, the the chapter that opens the book is a sort of mocked up um, 1990 Q magazine interview with her when yeah. she's a beautiful boxer. Um, 
and um, I thought I was quite, um, I wanted to. <laughs> um, he talks about how she talks. She talks about politics, but he, he never mm-hmm. actually allows her that space and that voice. So I wanted to set it up right there at the beginning. You're not actually going to hear this woman's voice necessarily. Um, a wee bit. But yeah, it was, um, I didn't find it that difficult because I love, like I said, I loved a lot of the other characters more than I loved Cleo. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was seeing Cleo through their eyes more. And she's the sort of person who's both fascinating and a total pain in the arse. But um, yeah, for me, it was, it was all right, actually. I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised, um, particularly young women readers have been coming up to me and just telling me how much they love and relate to Cleo. And I'm a bit like, I think she'd be a nightmare. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you, did, you did get to see the duality between the, the, you know, the adored pop star and then the yeah. friend that kind of becomes a burden on the likes of Ruth and Xanthi and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So I think that, as I say, that complexity a, a person is represented, even though... Cleo's voice is not directly there. Um, mm-hmm. You kind of touched on our politics, which is something that we, you know, shoot hot air about plenty on here. Um, Good like, segue, Matt. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> I love our, I love the kind of like punkiness and like the kind of political tone, particularly in that sort of opening scene where she kind of like walks into this pub and almost kind of like overtakes this sort of male-dominated space and she wants to talk politics. Mm-hmm. She wants to talk politics and her music. She even, you know, like weaponizes her sexuality to an extent to leave political messages on her body, knowing that people are looking at her and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. how much uh, Cleo's politics is, how much of that's coming for you? How much of that is naturally coming out of the character? Half and half. Quite a lot. I mean, I was... Um I was brought up in a very, very left-wing single mother household. Um, I was being taken on demonstrations when I was a, a really little kid. Um, and um, also taken to quite a lot. Um, there was a lot of big, for the people, um, like working class in kind of theatre happening at the time, like things like yep. 74 and uh, Wildcat. And my mum was right into them. So she would take me along from when I was quite young, from when I was about eight or nine or 10. And at the same time, the poll tax was happening. And yep. that, was, that was having a really big impact on me as well. And it just, it just all seemed to slot into place. But a lot of it, again, was 2016. I wasn't writing the book in 2016, but I was just kind of, working out what was going to happen and yeah it was a horrible year politically i mean it's all been downhill for a long time but <laughs> yeah. brexit and trump and it just felt like this hardening happening in the world and we were walking back on all of this work that we've been doing good vital work towards human rights and equalities yep. and this all kind of filtered in together actually so it was always um yeah, I think having processed through that year, I needed Cleo to be political. And then it just seemed to slot into place because for me, the poll tax, um, the poll tax demonstrations were such a big, I think that was the first time that I kind of got what it was about. I mean, I could shout Maggie, Maggie, Maggie out, out, out when I was five, but not really know what that meant. Um, but yeah, I was, I was nine and 10 when the poll tax was happening and it was the first time I kind of understood the injustices and, and, and it kind of clicked into place for me mm-hmm. and so for Cleo even though she's she's 12 years older than me it seemed to make sense to um that that's how she would kind of that would be her big starting point that would process it mm-hmm. and from there I just kind of worked back and forward so I realized that she needed to be in her early 20s around about 1990 um to have this big one hit wonder because a big one hit wonder is, is an anti-pol tax song yeah um, and she needed to be in her early 20s there. And from there, it just seemed to, I kind of, I had an idea of how old she was going to be when she died. And then I realised she was going to be 16 or thereabouts, around about 1984, and that was the minor strike. So then I needed her to come from Ayrshire. Um, and yeah, um, yeah and, and it all just kind of followed on from there. And I was asking, right, so if, if she's from Ayrshire, how's, you know, where, where's this coming from? what are her mother's politics and then the character of her mother kind of crystallized around that so it was kind of partly circumstantial and it all just seemed to to work together but then also I could take her forward and so you know the kind of the blandness of make poverty history that sort of thing and I was thinking mm. if I was 
37-year-old political activist who had been forged in the minor strikes in the Polsak riot. How awful and nothing is this corporate top-down thing going to seem? You know, that, that kind mm-hmm. of idea. Yeah. You feel her kind of anger coming through that. Um, there's a few, yeah, there's a few kind of demos and things that I was on that have kind of filtered into that a wee bit as well. Um, but a lot of the time I was just, I mean, she's living through political eras that I wasn't around for or I wasn't aware of. And I thought it was really important, again, to come back to the, the idea of realness. I, I read as much as I possibly could. I was reading people's first-person accounts of um, the Genoa G8 protests, for example. Um, yep. I was watching as much footage as I could of things like that. Of There's an activist squat um, that forms quite a central part of the book in the 90s in Brixton. Yep. And I was just trying to get as much um, visual detail as possible as well. So I was looking for videos and photos and first-person accounts and, um, yeah, just trying to build it all up from from that, really. Mm-hmm. Sorry, do you think no, no, not at all? So, something that, that that's coming up for me, just as you're, you're speaking there, is that we went for poll tax and minor strikes, and like what felt like really important, but no important, but like big protests that was taken really seriously. And then we end up at like Iraq war where we have record amounts of people in the street, but it gets ignored. Yeah. And we have the, the 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 years after that, where it really just feels like we've went into like this sort of individual sort of society where we just don't really care about big picture. It's just about how does it impact me X, Y, and Z. And one of the things I was going to ask was, do you think that that might off topic for the book, but just in a political sort of conversation? Do you think that we might end up in that same place with the BLM stuff that we're getting just now? Because activism's huge seems to be that everybody's really engaged with activism. I think lockdowns had a lot to do with that, where people have got enough time and space to actually take in and go, well, I feel passionately about this. But do you I think, think if they, for once. Yeah, exactly. But do you think if the establishment don't, which it looks like they're, they're not really going to do much about or really pay much attention to these types of protests, that will end up with another post-protest sort of blandness, like you're saying, like beige protests where nothing yeah, gets yeah. really done about anything? Mm-hmm. I wonder, I do wonder, I, I, I really hope not, I really hope not, I really hope we're going to kind of, there's got to be something, I mean America feels like a powder keg just now, doesn't it? It feels like mm-hmm. yeah. that entire society is about to blow itself up. We were just saying that before you logged in, he was asking me had I seen American news and I was like, after the last couple of weeks I've had to pretty much disconnect from it because mm-hmm. it, it really does look as though they're on the brink of something resembling a civil, a civil war at this point, but whether that's the reality in the country, I don't know, you know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, it, does, it isn't actually off topic for the book because I kind of followed Cleo's trajectory through that, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's um, it, it's kind of, it, it's just, uh, you can just sort of say what you hope would happen and what, what you wouldn't. It just, it feels like, surely, after all this sort of blandness, I've, I've got a lot of... Um, I've got a lot of faith in the people who are young just now. I mean, I was I was a teenager at the height of Britpop, mm-hmm. and that and Cool Britannia, and that was your ultimate and ironic blandness, apolitical, everything's okie dokie. Yeah, try to recreate the, the swing in sixties, but with major record labels and like yeah. fashion labels and catwalks. Yeah. It wasn't anything, it didn't feel organic, did it? It felt created almost, like no sitting chinging champagne with Tony Blair and you're like, right, okay, is this where we are? Yeah. That's where rock stars. Uh, but we're all, we were all encouraged not to be angry and maybe that's what kind of led to, this is the sort of trajectory I've tried to trace with Cleo, that that's kind of what led to the, um, the Iraq war was this big outpouring of anger though and then, like you say, it was just ignored and they thought they'd maybe harness it, turn it into make poverty history, which is, still i'm sure they had nice aims but it's a deeply cynical marketing exercise that isn't it mm-hmm. um, and um yeah I, I don't know i just um God, i've just got to hope the young young folk now are so much do you know the thing that really gives me hope is that um teenagers all over the world mobilized on tiktok and booked out that donald trump rally with yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 I'm just like, I'll go on the kids. I think the kids have got it sorted. I mean, yeah, my God. Just keep throwing them. 
I was going to ask, um, obviously there are some political issues that are addressed in the book that are time-specific, like poll tax, like mm-hmm. independence referendums and Brexit and so on, but there are other ones in there that don't have the same sort of time or don't obvious, have an obvious connection to the same time, like land reform and stuff like that. So are the political issues that you've touched on out with the time frame, are they because they resonated with your own sort of political upbringing? Yeah, essentially. Oh, God, the land reform thing was a whole chapter that was junked. There was going to be um, one, of, one of my narrators who I didn't ever quite finish was, um, was going to be the, the sort of um, uh, a, a landlord um, of an island kind of thinly disguised version of Egg or something recounting his memoirs and this awful troublemaker who came along. Um, but yeah, you know, um, Alistair McIntosh, um, I don't know if you know him, the, the big land reform campaigner, um, he was actually my my pal's dad when when we oh, were growing up and um, so he had quite a bit of an influence um kind of there and it was really it was really strange to see kind of come the indie ref everybody sort of celebrating him and talking about him like you know like this great big thinker when i just remember with my, my pal's dad um but i think i absorbed some of that as well and um yeah it was all just it just seemed to kind of come quite organically. I think maybe the sort of political issues that Cleo's interested in, I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the um, just the, just the idea of um, maybe I, I gave a wee bit of wish fulfillment there. Maybe I let Cleo go and be a, a lot more active all over the world, actually working on things that I would I would like to have done. And I've just sat and tweeted a bit of messages about. <laughs> That's a fear I have quite a lot as, you know, a member of, you know, the rebel cities that, you know, really all we ever do is actually talk to people while they're not exactly, you know, activists in that respect. So I think we all have that fear when we get talk, talking about politics in the public domain. Right, but talking's where it all boils <coughs> Like, I mean, that's, every single chapter in this book is basically just a conversation or a few conversations, um, you know, memories of conversations and tiny little interactions and the politics is kind of the the stage for it if it is but I also wanted to use it just to look at um balances of power imbalances of power and imbalances of empathy which I think is kind of what underscores yeah. all of that um you know if you can or can't empathize with somebody then that empathy is a it's not spoken about a lot in politics but I think it's it, it's what underpins kind of all political action or inaction or negative political action can be a lack of empathy and that's that's what's most important for me about this book i think and why i wanted all the characters to feel real i guess as well so yeah absolutely right where do we want to go next matt i think we've got about what, 15 20 minutes left so i was going to say that um one of the things that jumped out at me um, as I was reading through the book, and I'm assuming, you know, having any experience in journalism, this comes from where you've, you know, you've come from as a journalist prior to writing the novels. But like, some of the, or my interpretation of what I read was quite scathing when it comes to particular like, tabloid journalism. I know there was a, a section where somebody was talking about how they were going to cover Cleo's death. And, you know, I think the term used was... Um, doorstep and grief which kind of resonated with me quite a bit um and also the fact that you know in the light of somebody's death the editor or whoever was running the, the meeting was trying to like you know address the dyke angle and you know almost make a salacious comment about somebody's death um i mean those that that section felt pretty scathing to me i mean is that how it was intended yeah 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 um but it was it's all just the aspects of things that play into that idea of once like you said once somebody's died the media kind of moving on a, and try and make their own narrative out of it so yeah mm-hmm. that, was, that was kind of the bit that i was wanting to really flag up in that section was because I read this line and it felt like somebody had punched me in the stomach. So, I had, and it was when you basically like allude to the fact that somebody's life can be reduced to two hundred and fifty words. Um, like, how do how do you? I mean, do you have any thought to how you even prepare for that? Like, I don't know. It's a, it was just one of the ones that just hit me. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, man, we're all heading for two hundred and fifty words. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I don't know. Um, Just a pure yeah, throwaway phrase. <laughs> yeah, no, not really a throwaway phrase because it was um that's that's from Neil, who's um he's a journalist who kind of he's been sort of a wee bit creepily obsessed with Quill from the yeah. early days and kind of would declare her as the love of his life and he's sort of kind of covering her death writing her obituary and goes on to write a book about her um, and the reason uh, that's not the whole reason for Neil's character but quite a lot of the, the the newspaper plot there and around that was about how I just kind of wanted to make the point that it's impossible to sum somebody up you can never you could use an infinite number of words mm-hmm. and not sum up every single aspect of that person um so yeah, I think I, I sort of I sort of wanted that, but it just I think there's something about the box as well. Two hundred and fifty words in a wee box, mm-hmm. and that's um, like you were saying, the media kind of controlling the narrative, putting putting this woman back in her box, nice black borders around it, that sort of thing. And yeah, I, I just I just wanted to try and suggest it more and more and more of that. And there there are characters that creep in towards the end. There's like hints, like the land reform thing is only just mentioned in passing. That was going to be a whole other aspect of her life. Um, towards the end you hear from a very briefly from a former refugee who she's helped and yep. um, you know I wanted there to be these suggestions all these other lives that Cleo's lived that haven't been covered in there as well because I think that's realistic for everybody even if they're not living it's quite as extraordinary all out a life as Cleo you're different and you're I mean I can be five different folk <laughs> just kind of take my son up to nursery, um, you know, drop him off, say hi to the teachers, hi to mm. various mums, hi to the local shopkeeper, pop in, buy some, buy some veggies, go by and sit and chat about my book on, <laughs> on a podcast. You know, you're, you're, you're slightly different people to everybody. Yeah. And everybody's always, whether they're conscious of it or not, just adjusting to kind of work it in. And I, I just thought, yeah, I'm, I'm just interested in people being so much more than that with 250 words, but it's impossible to that has kind of slightly eased my existential dread after reading that. <laughs> like that. We can we can actually be more than two hundred and fifty words like that's. I'm glad I asked that now because that's been following me about all day. <laughs> uh, and 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 the Twitter age as well. Like I don't know if you if you know the Lemmy tweet about I met them at a party and they were a really nice oh, character. Yeah. Like the, yeah, he's got it down to two hundred and fifty characters. Never mind two hundred and fifty words. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's got his copy and paste obituary for people, but yeah. Dude, I just dug myself out of this hole. Don't throw me back. Like, <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Um, it's almost like there's almost there's like this sort of fascination with who can get there first as well, isn't it? It's like when somebody passes away, it's like everybody jumps to their social media to be like, oh no, and then there's almost like this sort of like domino effect that happens where you jump on and you go oh what's happened to this person you go into trending and they trend and you click it and then you just read through maybe like the, the top 10 like we're saying 400 characters like summary of this person and it's like it, it just does not speak to me at all it's, it, it sort of lacks respect and I think like that's what the tabloids do when somebody dies they, they don't really respect the person unless it's somebody that they need to respect otherwise like if um like a like a big british figure died like if the queen when the queen passes away or a member of the royal family then it's the five page spread and like they get the whole story and everything out but then if like you're saying sometimes people just become a footnote and especially somebody that's supposed to be like a z-list celebrity that was a one-hit wonder back in the 90s they absolutely would be like a footnote unless there was something that they felt could be sort of clickbaity about it, which would happen sort of more nowadays, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah definitely. When Caroline Flack took her own life in February, I mean, lots of people were already like, oh my God, that sounds like Scott the Queen. Um, and then, uh, so my, my my book was, because of COVID, my book was put back, um, it was going Yeah. the original launch date was going to be April the 30th. Um, five days, five days after Caroline Flack's death had been announced, somebody had put a somebody had signed a deal for a biography of her which was going to be published on the same day april 30th scabby queen um and i just thought that's just like <laughs> well, Aye, well in terms of like yeah um so that would have been a horrible coincidence i think i don't think i don't know Aye, celebrity is something that comes up throughout it pretty regularly um I mean, in the last couple of years, as you say, you've you've had your first book, Fishnet. It's been 
critically acclaimed, you've won awards, you've followed up now with Scarby Queen, and again, the the reaction to it, we're aware it has been like overwhelmingly positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you're even showing up in, you know, the reading shelves of the First Minister, who is basically our Oprah's book club. Anytime the First Minister's <laughs> reading something, well, pure, we, should, we should go book them, you know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> so there are, like, are the, the pitfalls a celebrity that Cleo experiences in her life, like, maybe fears that you've got about a rising profile, or is it just something that, as Mary, I kind of comment about these lives that you're observing? It's, it's more generally a comment about about the lives that I'm observing. Um, when it comes to the Twitter um, stuff that she experiences during the indie though, that was um, that was a wee bit more directly. My partner was um, very active and very visible, and he's a bit, yeah, you know, quite quite well known uh, during the indie ref, and he was getting so much vitriol, and he, he felt like he had to keep fighting it on Twitter. Um, and Twitter was just become both of our lives. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we were um, we were struggling with infertility. We've been trying for a baby for years, um, and the NDRF was happening, and there was just this gig. I, I don't think I've ever been as stressed out as I was watching what my partner was fighting about on Twitter and watching the latest attacks. There was one day that the Daily Mail was kind of attacking him. The, you know, it just it just got crazy. Um, and so a lot of that. Um, there's particularly there's a chapter where Ruth is watching Theo dealing with all this fighting and this attacking. A lot of that kind of came out without me even realising it. My partner sort of pointed it out when he read it. He was like, "Oh right, is that how you were feeling, Han? I'm sorry." <laughs> um, so there there is that um, that kind of that kind of visibility. That sort of it's not something I'd ever want for myself particularly. Um, I'm a bit shy. <laughs> I find it a bit. Um, <laughs> a bit more challenging. I mean, my God, when Nicola Sturgeon tweeted about me, I got a real insight into what it must be like to be that. Uh, I mean, I was getting so much abuse. If you if you click on the tweet and just look through the, the responses, they were all at in the end. Um, and it was just like this absolute disgusting pelters and pelters and pelters. And I thought, how on earth could you deal with all of this all the time um, at that sort of level? Yeah. Um, and the fact that social media has kind of enabled that amount of vitriol to be just poured at people as well is, yeah. is pretty terrifying. It's not something I would ever want. Mm-hmm. Maybe a lot of that is reflected in it. Yeah. Do you think anybody actually had read any of your books or was it just like an anti-Nicholas Sturgeon campaign that you were getting caught up in? Yeah. Yep, yep, Annie Nicola Sturgeon and Annie me as well by by um, by exchange. association was wild. Like people are mental when it comes to that side of things. It's just yeah. thankfully we don't well when we do get that level of attention we don't engage with it or we try not to anyway. We'll sit in our group chat going, Look at this, look at that, but we don't I respond to it publicly. I don't like getting oxygen myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're getting better. I think like back in 2014 when your husband was unfortunately experiencing that level of abuse and in, in, in vitriol as you're saying, like we we almost like took Twitter a lot more seriously than what we're starting to do just now where a lot of people have been like, right, this isn't real. These aren't real people. I, I had a, we had a conversation with somebody on the podcast and I said to them, if you're walking down the street and somebody runs up and screams at you because of the trainers that you're wearing, you don't engage with the person and scream back. You turn around and you walk away <laughs> and you kind of need to treat what are the same as that because if somebody's coming at you with anger and it's got nothing to do with you, it's the person, it's more about them and it is you and you should just completely just try and ignore it. But it's so hard to do when everybody starts at the same level and everybody's on, you know, everybody's got a Twitter feed. So you almost take everybody at that sort of level. It's the same, we'll engage try and get some sort of conversation and all you get is just like screaming into the void. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's horrible. And there's a an added an added dimension of being female in that as well, which means um the, the misogyny yeah. on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. Just, it just gets so nasty and so personal and so oh man. Yeah. It's, it's something I've seen commented on quite a lot recently. Um even as far up the ladder as Nicola Sturgeon. Um you know, hard to comment on it because it's never been something I've been subjected to, but it does seem to be more more prevalent by the day. Um, 
as we start to wrap up, and it's not necessarily directly associated with misogyny, but I think there's definitely a level in what went on, um, and it's the, the undercover police. Um, this is something that I remember at the time, I remember the story and thinking to myself, what the fuck? Like, how is, how is this ever allowed to happen? But in terms of the book, like, a lot of the subjects you touch on are quite abstract, kind of political, kind of like ethereal things, um, like independence and whatever else. Mm -hmm. This is like a very specific situation you've chosen to call out. Like, why, why did you make that decision? I was just, I was reading about it as I was thinking about this book. And I knew that this book was going to be about women in left-wing politics. Mm -hmm. um, in some way and um, I just couldn't get past it I couldn't get past this um, this idea that there were undercover that, again it, it's coming back to empathy a bit but the idea that you could be that a police force could be so callous so it just it just seemed to be this idea that you would think of you wouldn't think of people as on the same level as you so these undercover police officers they would go in, they would infiltrate activist communities and the best way, the way that they had this handbook, the way that all of them were told to do it was by establishing a relationship with a woman, first of all. Mm. And sometimes the women weren't even totally in the act, they were like on the, on the outskirts, but that made you authentic and vouched for if you had a relationship with a woman. Um, and it's, it's la layers of misogyny, it's layers of um, classism to an extent as well that... Mm -hmm that the amount of disassociation that you would have to do. I've, I've read these um, all these accounts and the, the undercover cops, they called the activists sweaties and wearies it was, not sweaties, wearies. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and they used to sing songs, they are fucking wearies and they deserve to die to like motivate themselves together. Wow. Wow. As you were faking a relationship with a woman. I mean, some of these guys had kids. Some of these guys had children with their targets, didn't they? They had children with these targets. You know, they, that, that was like the ultimate success. And they were all married as well. This is the other thing. They chose married men for mm -hmm. them because with families, ideally, because they wanted them to not disappear. Fall in love. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So they, they wanted them to have the pullback to these nice home counties' wives and children at the end of the day. Um, I just couldn't move past it. I was thinking about this book as these stories were coming out. Um, I was absolutely shocked and flabbergasted and I knew I had to do something about it somehow. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching The Firm. Have you ever watched The Firm? No. Is it, is it called The Firm? Uh, there's the a, a Channel 4... No, no, the Tom Cruise. There's another one. There's a Channel 4 movie, a film 4 movie about a guy that get, that is asked to go undercover into a neo he's, he's He's asked to go undercover into the West Ham uh, what football okay. firm and I'm sure it's called the firm but not the Tom Cruise one but the guy so it's it's told through this perspective of a police officer that goes undercover and, and he ultimately goes he goes crazy and then the end of the movie he leaves his, his girlfriend he leaves his wife for his girlfriend that he does the same thing he, he gets a girlfriend and that's involved with the West Ham firm and then at the the final scene is is that he's a full blown neo Nazi. He's left the police, and and I'm sure that that did happen for to some of these men that they they went off they went off and just felt like well, this is a bit this is better than my life or whatever. Or they identified with what went on, but it, there's never been a story about the women that encountered this and sort of mean even though this movie was made in like 1991. So there's the story of the men and try to give you this sort of perspective of the poor man who's ended up part of this sort of right-wing neo-Nazi thing or that's a shame he's went crazy. But there's no real story of his wife or the the, the woman that in the, the opposite side that he's ended up getting into like a false relationship. I think when I heard that story, I think it was um, there was Welsh miners um, and there was Irish women involved and they'd infiltrated as part of the real IRA and stuff like that in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I could not believe that that got greenlit, that they, they, they created a way for these men and yeah. actually encouraged them to have kids, like you're saying, that was the sort of golden chalice, like have a child that legitimises you in the community. You're going to get more indoctrined into, like you're going to get deeper into these societies, and we can try and infiltrate them. And but one thing, sorry, on you go. 
then they just disappeared. They all had these disappearance things that they would do. Sorry, sorry, Paul, carry on. No, no. One of the things that's really strange that's happening just now is there's accusations at agent provocateurs within the BLM movement. So we're seeing the whole Antifa, like uh, the, the violence is starting. There's videos coming up on Twitter of people that aren't involved in the rallies starting the violence and then disappearing. And it really sort of, it, it sort of, sh- I find it strange that people are even questioning that that's a thing. Seeing a lot of people saying that's ridiculous to even suggest that the established governments or police forces are infiltrating these movements to discredit them. And you're going, they've been doing it for decades and decades. Like, how can you even deny that? There's a massive, I mean, the women, um, a lot of the women who are affected have kind of pulled together. Um, to try and get their stories heard. Uh, one of them, Donna McLean, actually spoke to Danny Gabrielli in the Scotland on Sunday a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Her story was, was fantastic. She's, well, her story wasn't fantastic. Her, her strength and yeah. her anger was fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there's this whole documented history. Of course, it's happening with BLM. And this is the thing that it actually, as much as you dress it up by saying, oh, they're infiltrating the bad guys are infiltrating the neo-Nazis. Mm-hmm. Actually, most of them were, I mean, infiltrating Greenpeace groups. Yeah. You know? I was going to say that the group of activists that I think you were referencing in the story were yeah. environmental campaigners. They weren't the IRA or Al-Qaeda or any of that kind of stuff at no, all. Anti, mm-hmm. anti, um, anti, um, anti, um, uh, it was an anti-McDonald's protest, actually, that I, I kind of went for and my and my wee Brixton campaigners that's well wow. it's just yeah it's kind of but so really but just a, an individual example of what you feel like I don't know misogyny that you just had to call it essentially yeah I had to it had to file in the book and I wanted Cleo to be affected by it but it didn't feel like it was Cleo's story um and the woman whose story it is Sammy is actually my favorite character in the book apart from maybe Cleo's godfather I got I spent the most time, I think, in Sammy's head because I wanted to get as, as right as I possibly could without having that experience. Yeah. Um, I just kept thinking about how you would feel, about how that betrayal would feel if you'd had this child. And then to, to go back and what that would do to how you built trust, how you kind of, yeah, how, how you formulate things, how you, you know, and, and with Sa- in Sammy's case, it breaks down her, her current marriage. She only finds out sort of when her, when her daughter's 15. And it breaks down her marriage to her second partner, um, who she's having a kid with. Um, and I, w- I was imagining her brain, just what it would do to you, the ways that you would lash out. I spent yeah. so long with Sammy and in Sammy's head, actually, there. So Cleo's kind of peripheral in that in that story to an extent, but she's the one who gets the court case going. And yeah, that was that was the bit that I felt. It just it just seemed fantastical, which is that, that it could even happen. Yeah, and the damage that the, the betrayal of a partner does to an individual, I've seen that and fit and, and, and experienced that. And it, it, there is something really like shocking about it. But then to find out that it's not only an individual that you didn't know, but then it was your government that, <laughs> that actually did it to you. What that would do to an individual would be, I mean, you would, would you ever trust anybody ever again? No, that's, that's what I was trying to get to with Sammy's with Sammy's head, I mean, she goes off mm-hmm. to she goes off to meet Xanthi. She tries, you know, she's like an old friend, and then halfway through, she has this parent attack of paranoia that she's maybe just walking into another trap. And I wanted to kind of it breaks down her relationship with her children. It breaks down her relationship with her partner. I wanted to really show just the effects, the absolute brutal mm-hmm. effects. And um, that your government, yeah, it's your government. It's the state. It's you know. Supposedly, these lives were wrecked. Supposedly, for our, for our own greater security, national security. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolute nonsense. I think we kind of, as we as we wrap up, we, we normally kind of say to guests, you know, you know, what's next. Um, I'm aware of the fact that you've already announced that you've not written anything in two years. Oh, um, but do we have? Exaggerate. <laughs> do, do we have plans in the works for anything upcoming? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was working on an apocalypse novel, but I'm gonna shelve that for a wee bit and see how it all pans out <laughs> just in case <laughs> just in case that becomes a true story as well <laughs> um, I'm, writing, I'm writing a play just now um, that I've been working on for years on and off actually and I'm working with right. Scotland's on it now and it's about um, Scottish country dancing 
Um, and the women who, there's this kind of larger than life woman called Miss Jean Milligan, who was like the Miss Jean Brodie generation of, after World War One, there were, you know, eight times as many women as men and these women realised they were never going to get married and really devoted themselves to passionate causes. Jean Milligan's was Scottish country dancing and she kind of single-handedly took it all over the world and she's this sort of fascinating dictatorial character. I just I happened across it. I found an old textbook of hers in a charity shop about 15 years ago and her voice just like her voice is an absolute gift to a writer. Um, so I'm trying to write a big great big play about that but the problem is that my idea of it is that um, the audience would be doing the Scottish country dancing and it would be like a Kaylee. <laughs> and uh, who knows when that's going to happen, right? Yeah. So there's me, a composer, a choreographer and a director, and we're all just like having these Zoom, like, what do we think, 2025 <laughs> or something? Mm. Who knows? But well, yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on just now anyway. Sounds yes. cool, but it sounds really... I say, you can certainly keep us in mind when that comes and we'll, we'll dust off our dancing shoes. <laughs> What I dread as well that um, Fishnet's getting turned into a TV series. Yeah, yeah, that's really exciting. Um, I mean, um, I don't know if it'll ever fully come to fruition, but they've got the writer Andrea Gibb, who's just got all the baddest. She did Elizabeth is Missing. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, and she's adapting it right now. So I'm about to, I'm getting the, the first episode script in a couple of weeks. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. I don't know how you would show that sort of sex work on TV. Because, um, mm. I, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote Fishnet was sort of about desensationalising sex work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not the sort of sex work that TV likes to show. It's not no. Nor um, gritty. It's just a lot of, you know, women doing it in their flats to make some money. Do you remember yeah. Band of Gold? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I was. That's when I seen it was getting made into a TV series. I was thinking, oh, I remember Band of Gold because I think the Confessions, the uh, whatever the Billy Piper one, was a bit. It was almost like selling it, like selling it to people when sex works not really like the people that we've spoke to that have been involved doesn't really seem like that. But Band of Gold seemed really realistic, and I was a wee boy when that came out. But I just remember it being sort of like really gritty and sort of cutting edge. So hopefully. We get to see it at some yeah, point. It's, 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 that's the thing, though. It's, it's kind of it's about the, the people in the middle. Fishing it, it's about the sort of um, just the women who are kind of doing it to make ends meet, but it's not street work. It's kind of from their flat, sort of yeah. mums, basically, single yeah. mums mostly. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it's, I wanted to take it away from that sort of band of gold. Um, I made, it was really important to me that none of the sex workers in my book were going to die. Or end up dead, mm-hmm. um, you know, because just that's what happens. <laughs> I, I was, I was just, I was just like normal, p- real people doing it, basically. So yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. TV doesn't like that. I don't know. So I don't know how it would go, but we'll see. Is it hard to hand over your work to somebody else who's then going to reinterpret it? No, no. <laughs> I'm not. Fair enough. I'm trying. I'm trying to write. Um, I'm trying to write screenplay treatments but I'm actually not that interested in I shouldn't say this I'm public yeah, I, I'll, I'll edit, I'll edit this out you want to get me um, I don't know I like getting inside people's heads and you can't do that with telly can you it's, um, you've got to like trust that you've got an amazing director and actor to convey it all with their eyes um, too much too many calls <laughs> excellent I think uh, you get anything else you want mate no man it was good awesome I really enjoyed that. Um Kirsten, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up uh, sorry, Kirsten, we're gonna wrap up there. Um really again just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Like we've both absolutely loved the book and you know, we wish you all the success with it that, you know, has already been here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been great. Cheers. No guys. problems. Take care. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Bye.
See 